Hello and welcome to Whose Song Is It Anyway, a podcast with me, Dr. Hayley Bosher, co-hosted with Jules O'Reardon. Hello, I'm Dr. Hayley Bosher. I'm a senior lecturer in intellectual property law at Brunel University London and the author of a book called Copyright in the Music Industry. My research looks at music and law that relates to music and creators' rights, which is kind of what we talk about on this podcast. My name's Jules O'Reardon. I'm a partner at Sound Advice. I'm a specialist music lawyer, as well as being a long-established DJ kind of music maker, and I've done lots and lots of things relating to music. So my interest in music and the law is sort of from the inside looking out and the outside looking in. I'm Will Page. In a past life, I booked Judge Jules to DJ in Edinburgh once, so there's a financial debt to be paid back here. It's a great DJ set, thank you. And uh, yeah, I am the former chief economist at Spotify and PRS Music, meaning I've got a balance of rights holder and rights user perspective for this conversation. And more recently published my first book, Tars and Economics, published by Simon & Schuster on the 1st of April last year. And I published in six different languages and is going gangbusters, which is great news. Very impressive. I don't know that my book is in any other languages, so well done you. (laughs) So Chinese and Taiwan separately. And it's such a broad church, isn't it? Where do, where, do, where, where do we start with you? Because you've, had, you've uh, looked at the economics of music from so many different angles, from a more typical right society perspective, from what at the time was a, was a disruptor, who, which is now very much part of the mainstream. Um, do you, are, you, are you viewing things, if you like, from a sort of a statistician's perspective and interpreting things, or are you... Um, are your services employed to sort of predict the way that the market is heading as well? A very short way to answer that question came from somebody who is very short with words, Barry McCarthy, the chief financial officer of Spotify, um, who took the company public and previous to that, the CFO of Netflix, now at Peloton. But he said when he came into the company that he wanted to give me my job description. I said, well, what is it? He said, help me see around corners and don't F up. And I think a good description of what an economist does in a company, an economist does in music, is helps the leaders, the decision makers, the creators see around corners. You know, accountants count the beans, economists look at the gaps between the beans. We see the world differently. Um, And I think also if I go back to my childhood, my father, who taught me economics when I was 11 years old, he said it's simply about looking at things differently. It's about abstraction. Can different symptoms lead to different solutions when viewed differently? So you have a legal mindset, which is black and white, and then you have an economist mindset, which is very grey. And I think you need both. I think it's a real role in music, in copyright, in creative industries to balance the sea of lawyers with what is just one lonely economist. Sometimes you really are lonely. There's so many lawyers out there, but you're like the one-eyed man in the kingdom of the blind, which is ironic given I'm partially sighted. But I think the interesting thing is that you can bring a different perspective there, a different way of viewing the problem, a different way of solving the solution and risk uh, lawyers notably risk adverse do you think as an economist you are risk adverse or you risk neutral Uh, i always put uh, the entire workforce of the british population into two camps there's no squads people like to say no all the time and there's yo squads people like to say yo all the time and you're right lawyers are the no squads you know if you left the world of lawyers nothing would ever get done and they'd be billed handsomely for getting nothing done uh, whereas economists like myself, I would say we are yo squads. How can you construct that business case to which the CFO is going to rubber stamp it would be an example of a yo squad person as opposed to a no squad person. Jules, would you agree with that as a lawyer? 
Well, I, I come from an unusual background where I, I can kind of see it from a slightly broader perspective and I try to avoid being too... I, I, I try and present the the opposing uh, options without necessarily being so risk adverse as to always try and force my client down the most the safest path possible. I suppose academics can probably also um, sometimes fall within that camp but then also I kind of see myself a bit like you will that because I, it's, it's safe sometimes to be the academic that I don't have to I don't have to I don't have to take the risks either I just explain what they are you know. No, yeah, yeah, let's just recap there. So there's there's your squads, there's no squads, and the academics are in their ums and erring squads. Because academics um and erring say, I could do a PhD on that. Yeah, it, it depends. <laughs> Things like that. <laughs> well, what did Pre- President Harry Truman once said, find me an economist who's got one arm? Because we always get away with saying, on one hand this, on the other hand that. Hmm. So Spotify obviously has, or I mean, streaming per se, but Spotify really being the, the market leader has revolutionised the, the music world as we know it, do you, I mean, there are many, many questions one could ask. What, what do you think Spotify has taught us about the price sensitivity of the marketplace? The first thing Spotify taught us is about the willingness to pay a price as opposed to not paying any price whatsoever. I mean, the original vision of Daniel Ek, and I shared it with him in 2007, was that if you build something that's better than stealing, and at that point, all people were doing were stealing. U-Torrent, Kazaa, the Pirate Bay, huge piracy sites, all from Sweden, by the way, all from Sweden. And if you build something that's better than U-Torrent, people will pay for that better experience. And the very interesting backstory to how that was achieved, which is the play button, which many of your listeners will be pressing today, the Spotify green big fat play button. It plays really fast. And the story there was... The vision that Daniel had was, if you want to make it feel like millions of songs are available to you in your pocket instantly, that play button has to work instantly. Otherwise, any sense of delay and people will go back to stealing. So long story short, some very bright engineer said, I'll pick this one up and went into a cave, ate cold pizza, drank flat Coca-Cola for three months and built the play button, which plays 285 milliseconds after you press play. And what's relevant about that metric is 285 milliseconds is a point where the human brain can't see delay. Isn't that a beautiful... You're lawyers, I'm an economist, neither of us would think like an engineer there, which is if you want an instant play button, ask a psychology professor, excuse me, boss, what does instant mean? 285 milliseconds, boom, there's your play button. Now music feels instant. <laughs> yeah, and but you can cash offline, of course, too. But it's, it's a relevant story in terms of the willingness to pay now. And have a good broadband connection as well. That was then, this is now, and I think you're alluding to some work that I've done recently, which looked at the 20-year anniversary of the 999 price point. And there are two sides to this coin, pun intended. So, backstory, 3rd of December 2001, Rhapsody got its license to stream 15,000 catalogue songs, that's all they had, for 999, designed, hilariously, (laughs) to mirror the price of a blockbuster rental card. That was the economic analysis done at the time. If it cost $9.99 to rent movies from Blockbuster, guess what, buddy? That's what it's going to cost to rent music. And here we are in June 2022 on the eve of Glastonbury, and it's still $9.99 sterling euro dollar for all the Wells music. You could easily argue that's too cheap. Because think about it, we're offering more and more, and with the impact of inflation, we're charging less and less. But equally... On one hand this, on the other hand that, sorry Harry Truman. 
Equally, you could argue that's the charm price, which has got this country, Great Britain, with 20 to 25 million people enjoying paid music streaming services. That is a track record that is the envy of every other form of media. Not even 2 million people in this country pay for newspapers, and 20 million people are paying for music. That's staggering. And then you have to ask the question, and this goes back to the role of an economist, how do you see around corners? How do you get the next 20 million to pay? Clearly, they're the least interested, because they haven't paid yet. Clearly, they have the lowest willingness to pay, because they haven't paid yet. Therefore, raising prices might not be the best way to get them. So it's that, one hand, you could raise prices to keep pace with inflation and the increase in supply of music. On the other hand, you could hold this charm price, this charm price of 9.99. 9.99 is charming because it's not even 10. This charm price constant, and by doing that, we're going to get another 20 million subscribers in over the next 10 years, and that would be something to celebrate. Do you think that we will see, um, because do you think there'll be a, will there be a point where like everybody subscribed and then instead of new subscribers, we're going to be seeing people maybe switch between platforms and that kind of thing rather than like, is there a peak time? And then is that the time when we raise the price? Like at what point do we raise the price? Well, I came up with a term for this, and I don't know risk being cancelled by vegans here, but I call it when the market goes from being herbivores, which is dual services growing great, Haley services growing great, and whale services growing great. We're all growing each other's gardens. And then we become carnivores, where the only way whale can grow is by stealing customers from Haley and Jules. And I think the Netflix miss on their subscriber numbers, uh, which happened, what, two months ago? and resulted in the biggest stock market fall in the history of capitalism. Let's just factor in what that meant to market sentiments. I think you know an instant like that in the world of music might not be that far away. So we have to prepare for ourselves from this new narrative. We've had 10 years of herbivores where everyone's growing and nobody's stealing. But the day that we get a subscriber miss, the day that we hear that somebody's down and another person is up, that YouTube is up and Spotify is down, um, that's that's going to be a day of reckoning. That's when we become carnivores. And that's a completely different mindset as to what happens to the market going forward. But to stress, I mean, I don't want to be the doer pessimistic economist on your podcast here, but to stress, Sweden and Norway hit saturation point many years ago. Those guys are still growing. Those guys reported record revenues uh, last year. So Mark Dennis, the head of Sony Music Sweden, once said to me, we just got used to it being difficult doesn't mean you stop doesn't mean you shrink just get used to it being difficult so you know maybe just a sort of a leveling of expectations is in store uh, pretty soon as we become carnivores i think it's interesting talking about the price of um because especially when we talked a lot about the streaming inquiry in the first season of the podcast and this is something that came up um and there's a lot of, re- like you said, there's a lot of reasons to argue that 9.99 is too cheap. But recently there was this Kantar study that showed that people are unsubscribing and the top reason was the cost, which is obviously really shocking if you think 9.99 is, is really cheap. Um, so do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Do you think that that is something that uh, streaming platforms were going to be concerned about? Like, does that put stronger arguments in the um, sort of basket for keeping the price the same? Yeah, it's it's a very pertinent question, and credit to you, Haley Bosher, because you, you were huge help in writing Malbeconomics, but we wrote that paper when inflation was 2%, and now it's closer to 10 So the world has changed. And then, on one hand, that is like an 
accentuates the argument to raise prices because we have inflation. Those songwriters are getting pay cuts. How do we handle this? On the other hand, be careful what you wish for because people will be making cutbacks. Maybe Netflix is going to see more subscriber misses in the future. Um, maybe there's just not enough relevant content on Netflix to keep them attached. And we have to be aware of that with regards to just be grateful for what we've got. We have in this country well over 20 million people volunteering to pay a monthly fee for music. And it always has been and it always will be voluntary to pay. This is what we've got to write on our foreheads. You could stop paying for music tomorrow and carry on enjoying it for the rest of your life. You don't need to pay. But somehow, some way, and with big thanks to Daniel Ek and Spotify especially, 20 million British people are choosing to pay. So, you know, be careful to risk what you've achieved in the past 10 years through a sort of short-term greed to increase prices in the current environment would be my warning. Moving on to your, your role, your former role at PRS, which is slightly different, uh, or very different really, in terms of what the entity that it is. Could you just tell us a bit about that? Sure. Um, I was very, very lucky to get uh, my opportunity to enter the music industry at PRS. And I owe it all to their then CEO. I think I worked for five CEOs in five years, which when you came from the civil service prior to the PRS was in the British government and nothing changed. When you have five CEOs in five years, that takes some beating. There was the CEO at the time was Adam Singer, who is a visionary, and I really owe my career to him. And he brought me down out of nowhere, literally by reading an article on a bus and replying to it and getting an invite to come to London and sleep on friends' sofas and wear a suit for the first time to go and meet him. And he just asked me a bunch of questions, which when you've been in government, you've worked in the Treasury, and I don't want to destroy your faith in democracy here, but what civil servants are really good at is answering questions they know nothing about because they've got tools to construct an answer. I'll give you an example. He said to me, Will, how would you price a music catalogue? Gut reaction, I have no effing idea how to price a music catalogue, but then you use your tools. And if we're discussing here price discovery, then I would design an auction, to which Adam said to me, that's interesting, we don't discuss auction design in this industry. What auction would you design? And I'd say, well, you could have an ascending price auction, which is what we're familiar with here in Britain. You could have a descending price auction, which is what you do in Amsterdam when you sell flowers or Israel when you sell fish. Or you could have a second price deal bid auction, which is how Google works. It's called a Vickery auction, where you're insured against being a sucker. The sucker being the person who wins the auction is a sucker because nobody was willing to pay the same price as them. So insure me by giving me the second highest price. And I just walked him through some auction design. And I said, you know, I'm completely out of my depth here, Adam, but that's how I price a music catalogue. And it was those types of questions which got me my breakthrough into the music industry and to become the first economist and the chief economist of the PRS. Now, inside that business was a bunch of stuff, a bunch of high-profile stuff, working with Radiohead on In Rainbows in 2007. That was fascinating. Um, also working on Saving Six Music, something I'm especially proud of. And Mark Thompson quotes to this day the work I did there to show what made Six Music distinct. Six Music was playing more unique songs per month than any other station. Uh, a third more than Radio 2, twice as much as Radio 1. And the station that gave you the least choice was happened to be called Choice FM, which is a lovely thing to dine out on. But we were able to show the government that this thing called Six Music was distinct and preserve it. And it's great to see how successful it's been to this day. Inside the wheelhouse of the PRS, collective licensing, how do you keep the collective together? How do you keep the major publishers on board? How do you hold that blanket license together? And how do you trade the value of the blanket license? 
And there's a great story to capture that, which is I always remember the head of rights for the BBC saying on stage at a CSAC summit, which had public people in the room, he said, as it stands, <clears throat> as it stands, I have to negotiate with PRS and give them X million quid. And then I have to negotiate with PPL and give them Y million quid. And, I, and then he said, I would happily give you both more money if I only had to have one lunch. And what I mean by that is he's paying for convenience, not the copyright. Copyright's worth this. Convenience is worth a whole lot more. So, so are, you, are you saying that you were very instrumental in um, a lot of the functions of PRS and PPL being merged? Uh, I think the first thing I said when I arrived in London was, why on earth are two collecting societies going up to a hairdresser saying you owe me money when we could save so much money by having one? It baffled me. And I published a paper on that, which you can capture online, and which your, your audience will be especially interested in, called eCadonomics, which when I was looking at the madness of collecting societies, of what was happening with the European Commission, how Sweden had a database, PRS had a database, but they're going to merge and have this third database, but not get rid of the other two. So now we have three databases in operation. It was chaos, chaos. So I published a paper called eCadonomics. And what that did was it looked to Brazil, it looked to the military government in Brazil in the 1970s and what they created as a source of order. And in Brazil, you literally only have to have one lunch. If you're a TV station in Brazil, you have lunch with the ECAD, which is like an uber central bank model. European Central Bank exists, the Deutsche Bank exists, the French Central Bank exists underneath the European Central Bank. And that's exactly what ECAD does. You have one lunch with ECAD, you settle up your fee, they collect all the money for the songwriters and the artists, performing rights and neighboring rights are in there, and then they allocate that to member societies underneath the ECAD. And there's a commission-based model which allocates the fees there. That's the essence of ECAD. And I published that just to inspire the European audience to say, we're going down Madness Alley here. Is there another way we can look at it? And if you think about how broadband is regulated in the UK, BT OpenReach lays the copper pipe around the network. That's a super monopoly. And then ISPs, you know, everything, EE, network, Vodafone, compete for the final mile. That's not too dissimilar to what the Brazilian military government, who weren't very nice people and have a dodgy human rights record, did when they designed ECAD. Um, one last footnote to the ECAD paper, and we'll make sure you can share the link with your audience on your website, is two weeks after I published that paper, half the board of ECAD went to jail on corruption charges. And I had my mum call me up and say, why are you being affiliated with Brazilian gangsters? Like, no, 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 no. I'm simply trying to design market structure here. Why do we have 27 copyright databases in Europe, none of which talk to each other when we only need one? And that question still persists. So I still believe that ECAD can teach us a lot. But I am not affiliated with Brazilian gangsters. <laughs> I hope not. Um, I guess, I guess I mean, it's been absolutely fascinating. The final and very significant question to ask is about Tarzan economics and how it will help creatives navigate their way through the music industry. So my dad didn't just teach me economics when I was 11 years old, himself a mathematician and economist. Um, he taught me how to teach it. And he always said, you look at an audience in the face and the people you need to teach economics to are those who A, don't think they're going to understand it, B, don't want to understand it, but see, you have to. I always remember that lesson as an 11-year-old kid of just, how do you communicate a message given that's your audience mentality? And that's what I try to do with the book. I honestly think that music was the first to suffer and the first to recover from digital disruption. We woke up to Napster in the millennium. We spent the first 10 years fighting change. 
and we were the laughing stock of media, suing the consumer for piracy, having anti-piracy adverts in cinemas. That's my favorite one. Like, that's not your target audience. The people who are paying to go to a cinema are not the ones stealing your movies. And by the way, you've just told them they don't need to pay for the cinema anymore. Making all these ridiculous mistakes along the way. And then the second 10 years embracing change. And we, we are where we are with the recovery that is the envy of everyone else. And I just think every other sector of media, every other sector of industry, of institutions, of individuals are staring at their Napster moment now. What the book tries to do is offer eight lessons that you can use, you can apply. Not not like clickbait headlines that you see in business books, but eight genuine lessons that you can apply to navigate disruption, avoid the suffering and getting straight to the recovering. I'll give you one very quick example of a, a sector that's really embraced the book is the newspaper and magazine industry. And when they've asked me, you know, when a 90-year-old Australian asked me, what's my Napster moment? I told the story of King's Cross Station. Just very quickly, King's Cross up until it was made over was, if I can say this word on your podcast, a bit of a shithole. And when they rebuilt it, not only was it the biggest station in Great Britain, but it's the biggest concourse in Great Britain. And this matters. But did anyone notice that when they rebuilt King's Cross Station in 2013, 2014, there was no space for WH Smiths? If you're a newspaper or a magazine publisher, bingo, that's an Napster moment. There was space to sell Belgian chocolates, lots of them but nowhere to sell newspapers or magazines. And since the time of the Victorian, as you both know very well, newspaper agents and train stations went hand in hand and hip to hip. You're going to sit on a train for four hours, 18 minutes to Edinburgh, you're going to buy something to read on that train. Now we can sell Belgian chocolates, but we have no need to sell newspapers at train stations. And you can take that observation and apply it across the legal profession, across the finance profession, across government especially. The government's been a huge endorser of the book. And you can say, well, you're staring at Napster moments too, and this book's here to help you. It's not bragging rights, it's genuinely, this stuff is hard and I want to help you get through it. So I guess it's both being, having the ability to spot a Napster moment in the first place. Um, I, I, mm. I, I must apologise, I haven't read the book, but also clearly the solutions to the extent that there can be one-size-fits-all solutions. Grand stuff, and I'll give you one about the legal profession as well as a few others, if you go back to when I was at university, around about the time of Henry VIII, the top three professions at university was always law, banking, and accountancy. It was like, that's where you're going to go. You want to earn the big bucks, become a lawyer, get to KPMG, or go to work in the city of London in the banking sector. And everyone thought like that. If you look at the top professions now in 2022 in universities, those three are nowhere near the top. In fact, a lot of them are not even in the top 10. It's software developers, UX designers, engineering, um, computer science grads. So you can see right there, there's a Napster moment in terms of where are the brightest and best going when I was at university around the time of the millennium, and where's the brightest and best going today? So if you are running a law firm, that for me is a Napster moment. And if law firms, just sticking with the legal profession, there's a great line in the book, which is the only... It's only the legal profession which has the job title assistant to assistant on the org chart. So you think about that. There's a lot of admin in law. There's a lot of transactional costs in law. Tech looks at that and salvates like a Pavlovian dog and says, I can disrupt all that. And illegal solutions, AI contracts, they're being signed in the Bay Area right now. That's happening. And they're looking at the role of assistant to assistant saying, I can destroy that with tech. And then they're going to work up the supply chain. I know one very successful tech company in the Bay Area right now involved in the dark kitchen business. 
And they're planning to scale without a legal department, just embracing all the tech that's available as well. So there's Napster moments everywhere you look. And I'm not schadenfreuder on this point. I just genuinely think economics can help people see around corners and get through this disruption better than they otherwise would do themselves. I love what you said about what your dad taught you about teaching economics to people who don't, what was it again? Don't want to hear it. Don't want to understand, don't think they're going to understand it. More importantly, they don't want to understand it, but they have to. Definitely applies to copyright. It's like the the Brussels sprouts on the dinner table. Nobody wants that stuff, but you've got to make them eat it up. Yeah, amazing. I love it. Thank you so much, Will. It's been really, Mm -hmm. really interesting to talk to you and we will definitely uh, provide the links uh, to your book and everything for our readers who are interested to hear more. Well, credit to yourselves for a fantastic podcast. I, I listen a lot and I, I think it should thank be you. part of the education curriculum. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. So so I'll work on that. <laughs> and I'll be, I'll be checking out your book for, for sure, Will. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe.